Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. So here's the big flowery introduction, and it's always daunting to introduce you because you know how it is for someone in my position. Like, where do I start? Like, like how many credits do I slip into this thing? Like, I mean, there's so many films. There's I, a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's Birdie and there's Shortcuts. I always include Shortcuts and, and, you know, and the band played on and there's Vision Quest and of course, Dark Knight Rises. Uh, yeah. Full Metal Jacket. I think that's the name of the film. There's that one. You know, there's Cutthroat Island. There's, there's the work on stage. There's your work as a director. There's your work as a fearlessly political artist who cares about the community that produced him. And then, of course, the millions of new fans you have generated as uh, Dr. Brenner on Netflix's Stranger Things, the only flesh and bone villain on the show who died. Or was he or did he? That's sort of the, That's the question. Yeah. What a pleasure to welcome back actor and director and uh, New York City cyclist and a hero of my union, Matthew Modine. Thank you very much. So nice to be here, John. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, Thank you. I, I'm so happy that you are doing this tour because the character is not dead. Um, <laughs> I know that for years there was some kind of question of was he dead or was he not? Mm. But I, I guess we've learned from this show, if you don't see the body, the character is not gone. Yeah, that's what the, the Duffer brothers said. The question that people are asking now is how did he survive the Demogorgon? Mm -hmm. How did he survive Vecna, you know, when he went mm -hmm. and killed all the kids? And in the scene with Millie Bobby Brown, when she uses, she tries to use her power against him, he simply says, you didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? And so who is this guy? What What's happening? What's going on there? Well, and, and we're not giving anything away. If no, people haven't seen no, the new season all, yet. No, that's yeah. all happened in the... Well, if they haven't seen the uh, the first half of vol, you know, volume, uh, volume one. Four. Or volume one of, of season four. four. Of four season yeah. four, yeah. Well, here's what got me, because you're one of the reasons I don't give up on Twitter. And I was, I was reading your Twitter uh, like a week ago, two weeks ago, and you printed this. One of the elders of the city said, speak to us of good and evil. And he answered... 
Of the good in you I can speak, but not of the evil. For what is evil but good, tortured by its own hunger and thirst? Mm. Verily, when good is hungry, it seeks food even in dark caves. And I was like, that's Khalil Gibran, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and who I love. And I I just was like, oh, he's talking about this character. Yeah, I was talking about Brenner. You were. Brenner, yeah. Because I, I, I think if they're going to bring him back, the most interesting they, thing they can do in service to the character and the story is to not let him be a simple figure of menace and fear, but mm. actually to be a human, mm. to actually be a bit more of a complex character than maybe we thought based on season one. Yeah. I, I agree with you, John. <laughs> that's why, I've, that's why I, I, I put that out there. It's, it, the funny thing about it is how things come full circle. I studied acting just around the corner from here mm-hmm. at the city center with a, a wonderful woman named Stella Adler. Oh, I'm going to get to her. And one of the books that when we came into class that she told us to go out and buy and read was The Prophet. And I didn't know how to pronounce, I'm still not sure how to say Cahil, Gibran, Gibran. I've always said Gibran, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's different pronunciations. We did a reading at my wedding and I should have checked that before I did. Yeah, we have to ask a Lebanese person. But that was the book she had us read, and we were all, you know, enthusiastically flipping through the book, wondering what does this have to do with acting? What, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why read this book about this prophet and these teachings, these spiritual teachings? And you realize that Stella knew that in order for you to be an actor, you had to understand what it was to be human. Um, that this this shared experience that we that we all have that we we exist within these bodies and the body is what separates us. But when we connect in a different level outside of this materialism, is spirituality. And in the world of the spirit that Cahill Gibran is is speaking of in the Prophet, uh, we are all united. All of the energy of the universe is is united in that spirituality and it's what we have to be sort of taking steps towards and evolving to end these uh, endless wars to end this uh, inhumanity to to each other but it's easier said than than done you know because materialism is so powerful it's so i mean remember when 9/11 happened and George W Bush was standing on the pile and told people to go shopping you know and and what you and i because we've had these conversation, this 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 conversation, the resources of our planet are finite. They're not mm-hmm. infinite, and we are consuming at uh, an unsustainable pace, and we are producing more waste than the world knows how to digest. And so we have what the film that we, when we were kids, Koyana Scotsi, oh yeah, uh, that life out of balance, and we have to do something really urgently and and very quickly, or life as we know it is going to be unrecognizable. Well, that's the interconnectedness, isn't it? That that brings together spirituality and politics and the environment and art. Yeah. I mean, there's a great track on the uh, Johnny Cash unearthed box set and it's studio dialogue. The only piece of studio dialogue where Rick Rubin has given him a copy Mm. of Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. Mm. (laughs) And he's asking the soul Baptist Johnny Cash in his 70s, what he thought of it. Yeah. And for Cash, it was transformative. And Rick Rubin just rolled on it. You can hear it. Uh, it's on the box set Unearth. And, and Rick Rubin just included this bit of them talking about the book, The Prophet. Wow. For me, it was important at the time because there was such incredible anti 
Muslim sentiment from people who claim to be Christians. Mm. And it, it was all linked together. And I, I will bring this back to Stranger Things, but I think you're saying that spirituality is the thing that does connect all living beings. Mm-hmm. Is that what you believe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. It is. So bringing it back to the monster show, that's what I found so interesting about the character because I couldn't help but feel that you had not just lobbied to bring him back, but that you had lobbied for him to be more than just a villain. It, well, because villains don't exist in real world. Yeah, I, I've, I didn't like that the reason that I was chosen to play the part was because I believe that I'm innately good and I, I want to make the world a better place. So it's very attractive to uh, filmmakers to take somebody who's really good and have them become somebody who's really bad. Yeah. Because it it's more horrible. It's like, why is that good person who seems like a good person doing such evil things? It's, it's interesting. It's, I mean, yeah. Sergio Leone wanted Henry Fonda to play a murderer in the yeah, Western. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I felt exploited. And so... I was always defending Dr. Brenner and saying, but he's not, you know, he he loves his children. And, you know, when I embrace that boy and at the first eight minutes of season one, that was a choice. That was that he loved that boy. And we didn't get to see that with Brenner and Eleven because it was what we got to explore this season was the origin of how did we get there. And, And the Duffer brothers always said to me, no, no, no. Brenner's bad. Brenner's bad. Brenner's bad. He is responsible for a lot of death. He is. He is. Yeah. (laughs) But he's not the cliche mad scientist. Now, you just as an actor would want to imbue him with all the humanity you could because that's the job. No one plays Richard III as a villain and gives an interesting performance of Richard III. You can't just be, hey, let's be evil. So, I mean, it, it, it actually gives me pause because don't you enjoy playing a sinister character and being able to not just have the fun of it, but to go through the workout of imbuing the humanity in a character yeah. which on the page is just a bad guy. Yeah. I don't enjoy it because I feel like when I come home after playing, I want to take a shower and kind of wash it off. Daniel Day-Lewis is is a, he's not a close friend, he's a friend. And I, I know afterward he like shaves his head because yeah. he wants to cut that character off that whatever it was i mean particularly there will be blood yeah um that was a guy that you really probably wanted to fast and cut cut things off yeah the that, boxer too yeah yeah that was a really bad guy yeah and so my father was a drive-in theater manager and i grew up watching so many movies and what i wanted to be was an agent for change you know that I, I didn't want to be the person who was responsible for the problem I wanted to be the person who was solving the problem mm-hmm. and you know so to find myself being a person who's really causing the problem playing that person imbuing that that character it's not something I, I don't I don't enjoy it so I just try to fill him with as much love and confuse the audience as much as I can. That's why I've been looking forward to talking about this character with you and this new incarnation of him. Because again, he is trying to exploit and weaponize this child's power. He is responsible for the deaths of a lot of kids. But it seems that the team understands that 
solidifying his relationship mm. with L is what is going to actually make us care for him for the first time because we you, you were a menace in season one and then we just saw you in flashback and then not seeing you in season three yeah, yeah. i i just love the choice to bring him back and make him a whole new character yeah the same guy we knew but now we're going to actually know him yeah i'm really anxious to see what's going to happen in this volume too the the next episode that people will see is called papa mm -hmm. and i i have not seen it i mean obviously i I played it and I read 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 it and brought it to life, but I don't know because the Duffers are very clever. Um, you know, we may have shot some things that because there are a lot of people that work on the show to confuse them so that should something be leaked, they may be really leaking, yeah, it may be leaking information. Oh, you may have done that. <laughs> no, we did. Oh, you did, yeah. But but I don't know how they'll cut those pieces together. So yeah. you don't even know. That's great. I don't know. When when we did Dark Knight Rises, they shot a scene where Batman was dead. Yeah, Bruce Wayne was dead, and there was a funeral scene, and they were they were burying burying the body, and they put Christian Bale there standing with with Michael Caine, uh, just like a few feet away, so that they could remove him or maybe he was just outside the frame of the camera but they they shot it because they knew there were paparazzi that were photographing things so it couldn't be christian bale that was buried because christian bale was standing there right so they they do they 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 have, they, to. They have to we live in a different world today with you know somebody can take a photograph and and post it on social media and the entire world knows within a few minutes you make me think of your character in that film because he was also a character who was a good guy and yet an antagonist at the yeah. same time yeah and i always thought in many ways he was the most nuanced character in the film he not unlike bruce wayne this good guy who's a bad guy who's yeah. a good guy yeah. who's a bad guy yeah I, I feel like in Dark Knight Rises, my character is the only one that had what we call a character arc. He know, sure does. Beginning, a middle, and an end. With the redemption. Yeah. Yeah, he shows up. You know, volume four of Stranger Things has now broken the record as the biggest premiere weekend ever for an English language TV show. And it makes me think that you went from this childhood of growing up around drive-in theaters, then you became a film and television and stage actor, and now you're in the biggest streaming show of all time. <laughs> what do you think of the evolution of how we tell stories using screens? Yeah, it's so different. So I, I've been saying 162 territories. It's actually 190 territories that Netflix is in uh, out of 196. So, you know, if you take all of my films sort of together, if, if a film was successful in 60 territories around the world, in the 80s, that was a tremendous success. You know, 60 Territories, it was a number one film in 60 Territories. So to have a show that's in 190 territories and I don't know how many different languages, it's a kind of success that I don't think other human beings have existed maybe in the history of entertainment that to be that. Yeah. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was probably one of the biggest stars in the history of this business. and. I don't think that his success at, it anywhere touches what what things are capable of, like Squid Games, you know, yeah. being the big billion and a half hours of viewing that people have watched Squid Games, yeah. some, some number like that. So I'm I'm hoping that Volume Two uh, puts us over over the 
because you said you mentioned English language, yes. the most watched, that we'll catch Squid Games and be just the most watched. That would be cool. I mean, what has surprised you the most about the vastness of the popularity of this show, especially because this season's not screwing around. It's a horror show yeah. from the very first scene you're in at the top of the season. What surprised you the most about just the enormity of the fan base for this? I don't understand. You know, John, I've tried to figure this out now. I've done over 120 movies and television shows and worked on Broadway and Chicago and London on the stage. Every time I start a project, I start with the same enthusiasm and excitement and think that this could be really great and really fantastic. And the crews have the same equipment. They have cameras or film, film cameras or digital cameras, lights, sound equipment, enthusiastic crews and art departments and hair and makeup and costumes. Everybody works together to, yes. to, to put this thing together. And sometimes it works. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are able to photograph and it's magical and, and transformative. And other times it's just, it just doesn't, it's just flat. I don't understand why or how that happens. You know, that's the magic of show. Yeah, I agree. I but you've always got to bring the same commitment and the same enthusiasm to every project. 100%. Are there films that you have worked on that you are just baffled didn't find the audience they deserved. Yeah, one of the that you mentioned, Cutthroat Island. Yeah, um, I had such a good time making that movie. Gina Davis was was wonderful to work with. The uh, other other actors that it's worked a on the film. Terrific role for you. We had such a good time making that movie, and when it was critically panned, I sort of felt like we had, you know, it was being viewed upon as though we had tried to remake Gone with the Wind or something. You know, it was just a pirate movie that was designed to be fun. I think it was a little bit too early on the curve of, you know, people weren't prepared to have Gina Davis as a as a woman leading an action movie. I, I don't think that if you release the film today, it might be, you know, completely differently re received, you know, by the, by yeah. the audience. I don't know what it was, but... It was just a pirate movie. It was just really fun. I, I think it's better than, than the Johnny Depp Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just all of the, there's no visual effects in the movie. When we blew, yeah, a, when we blew a ship up, we blew a ship no, up. No, it's and, amazing. I, I think yeah. at the time uh, there was a certain industry or media bias against the director. Yeah. And I think that that colored a lot of the reviews of the product itself, yeah. of the yeah. actual work, because it certainly found an audience in Gable. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did, yeah. Are there any, it's 35 years this week since a low budget indie film <laughs> called Full Metal Jacket opened yeah. in theaters. Speaking of films that you probably knew were special while you were making them, are there any stories you haven't told? About Full Metal Jacket? Uh, yeah, because you wrote a wonderful book about the experience. Yeah. Your, your photographs that you've, that you've shown have been brilliant. I've never seen you do an interview where someone doesn't Mention just it. Kubrick out on you. Yeah. I don't think it's burdensome for you to have to talk about it all the time, but are there any stories you haven't told? Do you ever get tired of telling the same? I'm I mean, sure there's a story I, I haven't told. I, I mean, I love the Val Kilmer story. I love the anecdotes. Yeah. And the story of your, your wife going into labor is just uh, an astonishing story about yeah. Kubrick and about logic itself. Just he wouldn't let me go to the hospital, you know. So I, I had to threaten him with cutting my hand open 
and having to go to the hospital to have my hand stitched. But, what, closed. but, he, he, but he had logic about why you shouldn't go there. Wasn't he saying, like, yeah, you're, he, you'll be in the way? Well, he said that, <laughs> yeah, I'll be in the way. You know, if she's having an emergency cesarean, I, I would pass out if I saw once they cut her open and the blood was spilling on the floor. Then he went into further logic about how a child doesn't even need a father for the first year of its life, that it just wants its diaper changed and, and a boob, you know, to drink milk. But yeah, I don't know some story that I've never told about Kubrick. That, but you, I think you pulling out the knife was actually being logical right back in his face, yeah, I always thought. Yeah, yeah. He couldn't believe that, I mean, the shock on his face that I, I was actually considering cutting my hand open. Do you think he respected it? I think he did, yeah. Emotion was was something that he had a kind of, I believe, struggled with, the human, human emotion. And it's why he couldn't figure actors out, you know, because it's such, such a technical process, you know, memorizing lines, hitting marks, you know, the costumes, the makeup, all of that is very controllable. But then there was this human emotion, you know, that was so tricky and and how do you control it and how do i mean we see in the great documentary that stanley kubrick's daughter vivian mm -hmm. kubrick made in the making of the shining and how he was able to really crush the spirit and the soul of shelley duvall you know how he treated her but i believe this is something i don't think i've ever talked about you know stanley wanted to make a movie about napoleon for yeah. for, for decades and he he had card cataloged every moment that he was able to about Napoleon's life that, you know, he had a card catalogs like in the old library. He wanted Brando for it, didn't he? A, a, a whole bunch of people. Nicholson, That's he talked right. to yeah. Nicholson, several, several actors. But he trying to understand the, the journey of this man's life. And by the way, had Napoleon, the project existed in this time of Netflix or streaming services, Stanley would have been able to make it because what he was never going to be able to do was make a self-contained story about Napoleon the way he wanted to yeah. in a feature film, that it was something that needed to be serialized over a season or two seasons. Like a Barry Lyndon, just yeah. let it be as long as it needs to be. Yeah. And, and uh, it's unfortunate that Stanley passed away before the advent of Netflix, because I'm sure we'd all be enjoying Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon right now. <laughs> but it's true that he was quite collaborative on set for all of the, I mean, for all of the famed, you know, difficulties with human emotions, which yeah. comes in handy in a thing like 2001. But yeah. he was very collaborative with the actors in very, terms of very setting up the shots. Very collaborative. He he said he, he could never knew where to put the camera until the actors did the scene. So he didn't have a preconceived storyboarded idea of how, how to make the movie. He needed to see the actors really do the scene. And, and that would reveal the place to put the camera. It, does the camera have movement? What lens to put on the camera? He hadn't pre-lensed the movie. He hadn't pre... Of course, I'm sure he pre-visioned it. He had it in his imagination about how he would shoot it, how, how it would come together. But, but he really needed the actors to go through that. And again, it brings us back to that emotional life. And what I was going to say about Napoleon is that I think that the true 100% fascination that he had with Napoleon was that this great general, this unbelievable strategist, maybe the most famous combatant in the history of the world, 
could be brought down by emotion, you know, in his love for Josephine. I think that that's what what it was. That that and and I think that that's what's in Eyes Wide Shut mm-hmm. is that, that this you know it's interesting. This is something that your audience won't know. Is Nicole Kidman is dressed like Stanley Kubrick's wife in the film. She wears the same clothing. She wears the same glasses. Christian, his wife's paintings are on the wall. I knew that. And I think that you know I, I'm sure that Stanley had smoked some joints in his life and he came home and i don't know if you know any german people german tend to be much more open about sex and conversations about sex it's a you know we're puritans over here on this side of the ocean and over there it's just something people actually have sex and have children Mm -hmm. that that's what they do and sometimes they just have sex for enjoyment you know (laughs) yeah can you believe those crazy germans and so stanley's married to this german girl and maybe they smoked some pot and they were at a at a party and came home and and they started having this conversation that led to well have you ever had a fantasy about having another sex with another person while you're having sex with me and christiana said yes of course and he was like what really and he i think that stanley i'm this is all me uh, was emasculated by a frank, honest conversation that he was having with his wife and felt that he needed to go out and do what Tom Cruise does in yeah. that film, was to, you know, just to experience something because Stanley grew up just up the road from here in the Bronx, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he imbued that onto the, I mean, the book, the uh, dream story that he adapted for the film. But, I mean, I think that's a horror movie. You know, I mean, at least for for Cruz's character. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, 100 percent. You mentioned Stella Adler and um, I never got the pleasure. I, I, and why you put me in with Circle in the Square and I never got to go to Adler. But I've heard you talk about her before. And I'm wondering, how does her teaching still speak to you? Which parts of it do you still mm-hmm. relate to and other parts of it that like much of method, like much of Stanislavski, just nope, I don't need that. I need this i always viewed it as like religion or diets you take the parts you need and you can safely ignore the rest and did she influence you in terms of your commitment to politics as an artist she definitely influenced my politics you know and and how she talked about it all the time because she had grown up in political theater you know whether it was ibsen or chekhov or arthur miller that theater was a place of ideas where we get the opportunity to, through language and and performance, see somebody looking at life. And, you know, like if you imagine a horse with blinders on his eyes so that you can only see forward, that what the theater had the ability to do was to open those blinders to help us to see the other, to see a different point of view, to experience something the way that Harper Lee in her book To Kill a Mockingbird says that we never truly understand another person till we get inside their skin and move around in it. And by definition that's what we're doing as performers is climbing in the in the skin of these characters and and trying to see the other, try to understand these desires and dreams that we have are universal. Unless you're really some kind of sick person, you don't want to harm another person or or kill another person certainly that we want to enjoy life and sometimes there are people politicians and oligarchs and that don't care about other human beings and just want to push 
people down and and to be more powerful and mm-hmm. you know and selfish that's why i made that that film jesus was a commie which i loved you know it thank you because i just the, the the most powerful thing i feel that's in that film and it's the most powerful parable that i've ever read and, and i i've searched through religious texts before that that the the concept the idea of forgiveness I don't find it before that parable when he says that those among you that are without sin cast the first stone, that, you know, we, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And the, the journey is to that understand that every day we have every moment, we have the opportunity to, to decide who we are and what we want to be, that we can be an asshole in this moment or we can be a good person. We can be forgiving or we can punish we can steal or we can pay you know that 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 we have that, that we have that ability to make those decisions every second of our life and so you know i, I know that you're a person who wants to be a good person and, and every moment of your life you try to you know even through your comedy through through the the the, the witty things that you write that you say that you're helping us open those those blinders on the side and help us to see the world in a different way through humor. Billy Wilder said, if you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny or they'll kill you. And uh, I tried being preachy. I wasn't any good at it. Um, I I would love to have you back anytime just to talk about politics and the environment and and bike riding and spirituality. But um, I'm so grateful that you came in. I love talking about craft with you and talking about your work. If you haven't seen it yet, what's wrong with you? The fourth season of Stranger Things is streaming now on Netflix. I know you're going to be in um, Christopher Nolan's film of Oppenheimer coming yeah, up, and yeah. I can't wait to see what else you do next. Wow, Mr. that's Modine. crazy. Oppenheimer is crazy. You can know, you when, tell us anything? I can tell you when I contacted him to ask if I could be a part of the, the show, he said, well, we're, we're just casting a lot of unknown actors. The only person that anybody knows is Killiam, Killiam Murphy from Peaky Blinders. And I said, that's okay, Chris. I just, I just really love to be a part of this project and work with you again. And then I found out Matt Damon's in it, <laughs> Emily Blunt, uh, Gary Oldman, Kenneth Branagh. Wow. Did I say Matt Damon? You did. So maybe I, it'll get some press. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. I mean, it was funny, the, the bit that he said it was a bunch of unknowns. Great. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be amazing. You know, and the thing that's amazing about it, going back to communism, is... Because Oppenheimer was a communist, but it was a communist in the sense of Karl Marx and nothing to do with Stalin or Lenin or Mao. It, it was about the idea of community. That exactly. the, root, the root of the word is with, and uh, that we are with one another. Yeah, he was not a totalitarian. Yeah. He actually yeah. believed the Jesus-y yeah. parts of it. But then they were willing to turn, you know, the government to turn is, and, and say, okay, let's not look at that. Let's just look at you have the ability to help us to make this bomb. And then as soon as he made the bomb and they deployed it, of course, then he was a communist again in their eyes and they, they chucked him out and just, just destroyed his life. I can't wait to see it. Matthew Modine, thank you so much for joining us yeah. again. Please thank come back you. and let's go even deeper on this okay. stuff. Okay, thanks, John. Thanks a lot. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So when you think about duos in popular music, they don't get much more iconic than Phil and Don Everly. Their harmonies are about as close as we get to heaven in American pop music. And of course, the beauty they created will live on past them. We lost them in 2014 and 2021. And they left behind an amazing catalog of music that is, uh, I'm afraid, a little too often remembered mainly for the hit singles. And those are all great. I could listen to Wake Up Little Susie, Dream, Let It Be Me. They deserve to be beloved. But there's so much more to the Everly discography, which is why it's so great. There's a brand new compilation with 17 tracks from their back catalog, including, I guarantee, a number of beautiful songs that I bet you've never listened to before. It's called Hey Doll Baby, first released for Record Store Day 2022. That song is the closing track off their debut album. And the songs were selected by the great Adria Petty with input from uh, Patty, Phil's widow, and Jason, Phil's son, and Don Everly himself. This was the last project he worked on before he left us last year. Now, Adria Petty, for you who don't know, is a filmmaker and editor and art director. She's done videos for people from Regina Spector to Beyonce to Macy Gray. Her documentaries include Regina Spector live in London, and she also directed the video for probably my favorite song that has been released in the last decade, Tom Petty's For Real. It is a great pleasure to welcome diehard Everly Brothers fan, Adria Petty, to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's so good to see you. I, we were just geeking out before because uh, I first met you when you were an intern back in the salt mines of MTV. And I just want to thank you for all the great work that you have done. And it's so amazing watching your career. And th- this record is just fantastic. Before I jump into it, how are you? How is your family doing in the never-ending pandemic? You know, we're all doing really well. Thank you for asking. We've gotten to a place where, you know, we all sort of live in these remote rural places that are really beautiful and have sort of like a nervous system break for two years. So everybody's doing great. The band seems to be doing great and are all out on cool tours. And, you know, the estate is filled with young people that love going through all of our old videos and films and all that stuff. So it's been a really interesting couple of years, you know, to start in the Tom Petty estate, but we're doing great. I'm so glad to hear it. I got to tell you, I love this collection. And what I love the most is that it's not a hits collection. This is for both the true fan and the newcomer, which is a very rare compilation to pull off. There are some classics here, but there are covers of Jimmy Reed, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash, and I know the Everly Brothers had a very deep place in your heart. You were brought up on this music. How did it come to pass, Adria, that you had a hand in this beautiful collection? It's such a trippy story. I mean, you know, all of us music folks uh, that grow up in families of musicians have a really strong bond. And 
I left home at 17. So I've sort of like denied the part of me that knows so much about music for a long time. And then when my dad passed away, started, you know, putting things together and wanting them to really represent his legacy and, and the love and work he put into things. So Patty um, Everly, Phil Everly's widow, reached out to me while I was working on Wildflowers and said, can you help us work on some stuff for the Everly brothers? And, you know, full disclosure that I'm a complete psycho fan and named my daughter Everly. So I have an eight-year-old named Everly <laughs> and um, Everly Petty. And I, I, uh, I told Patty that, you know, if she'd give me a minute, I, I'd try to do it. And I called Don Everly and I got him to pick up. And I talked to him for a bit because I had to get the blessing of both sides, which has historically been difficult and got sort of a, a bridge of peace there to really have a conversation about, hey, you know, there's a lot of greatest hits albums. There's a lot of golden hits albums out on the Everly Brothers. But what about Rockabilly? What about the Bo Diddley influence and all of the like sort of fun, you know, as much as they're amazing singers, they're like the best guitar players in the world as well yeah. and playing yeah. with some of the best you know session players in the world on these records so he with his blessing and with his input and love and some really cute giddy conversations i went back and looked with warner brothers and cadence through the archive and put together a record i thought would be a little less expected and a little bit more about just you know those those videos and films on the everly brothers were around a lot when i was a kid mm-hmm. there was like top 40 or you know I don't know, like Dick Clark would re-air them and, you know, you would see them in full res on TV. Now they're just sort of lost to time and you can't see these two gorgeous guys at the top of their game, masters of their craft, playing and singing with this just complete volcanic excellence, you know? And for me growing up, it was just pointed to and referred to so much. It's such a sort of required reading for anyone who loves rock and roll to really get to know the Everly brothers and to try their hand at the Everly brothers. Right. Mm -hmm. It's really like how you get the Beatles. It's how you get Simon and Garfunkel and it's how you get Tom Petty. It's Hey, if those two guys from Kentucky that are like shoveling coal can do this, I can do this. Yeah. You know, and they did it without any computers or any help or any instruction. They just really found their way. And I had the pleasure of also going to school with Chris Everly, Phil's son. So my dad would wait outside the school for Phil to be there. And it's the only way you could have got my dad to a school and act like he was you know, going to pick me up anyway, but really just wanted to run into Phil. So my dad gave them their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's right. And ended up taking them for the reunion tour to Albert Hall. My mom and dad flew to London with them as sort of like a buffer. So (laughs) I had a history with them in the past. And then much later, Patty reached out to me and I've gotten to know Jason really well as well. And also some people on Phil's side of the family. And I I just feel like it's important for people to hear this music. I feel like it's important that all of their video and film is preserved and their photographs. And I think it's important that their story and their role in Americana is discussed and that people realize how much people can dream up amazing, incredible lives and leave behind incredible contributions. Like Exactly. Exactly. These guys were on the radio with their family, you know, it's like amazing. I mean, I know that you you knew Phil growing up, and I know that you got to know Don a bit before we lost him last August. How involved was he on the track selection, and, and were there any tracks that were really important to him to be represented? He was not, like, 
involved in a way that was like, this must be there, this mustn't be there. But he was excited that I liked the rockabilly stuff like Hey, hey Doll Baby, yeah. the picking on Muskrat, um, that we were dusting off like the first version of Love Hurts that was ever done and had sort of been buried. He was thrilled to hear a new approach to the work. And that was more the conversation. You mentioned how good looking they were. They were like really the first heartthrob, true American rock and rollers, not just pop stars, but heartthrob rockers with the best look, the best tunes, the best guitars. They were like James Dean and they were pioneers on stages. You know, they really helped begin what we now call the rock touring business. But what I love about the collection is I don't know that they ever get as much credit for their songwriting as they do for their harmonies. That's true. I mean, they had that incredible Boulot Bryant, you know, songbook that was a lot of the sort of like tentpole success. But like Kathy's Clown or When Will I Be Loved or the song that they wrote together, Gone, 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 which I think yeah. is so badass on this collection. It's sort of like them calling. It's like a clap back to the Beatles, right? It's like yeah. the Beatles did their thing. And they're like, hey, we, we did your thing first. Like, this is us serving it back. And um it's like, I think, incredible to see what prolific and completely, you know, consummate craftsmen they were as songwriters. And, you know, sometimes when people are talented in all these different ways, you really kind of just take it for granted, you know. Yeah. And this album so stripped down in places that you're just like, wow, this is cool and fun. Like these guys are just so good, you know. They're so great. And I was thinking, listening to it, the one thing that we don't get from the recorded records is the intensity of the eye contact they would use on stage. But the more I listen to this record, I'm like, no, you do get it. You don't see it, but it's almost like the eye contact these two brothers would share fed the intensity of the performances. It really comes through on this for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mentioned that in my liner notes that the eye contact, you know, one thing that people don't talk a lot about in music and that I talked to my dad a lot, actually the year that he passed away, about was stagecraft, which is like, yeah. how do you communicate with other band members and tell them what you want them to do right when you need it? And how do you create this sort of like physical cue impulse thing with the other people around you? I mean, these guys were singing together from birth basically, right? So they could give each other a look, raise an eyebrow, take a step back or point to something like so minute and you can see it on all the television performances and they could really kind of get each other back in line. Right. And um, the dynamic is extraordinary. I mean, musically it's extraordinary. It's just absolutely awe-inspiring. And I feel and not to reference the heartbreakers of an Everly thing, but I mean, the heartbreakers, I often think about like those guys are closer probably than 99% of married people in terms of like, they can say something without saying it. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when you look at the way great performers who are bonded like that perform, it's really special. And it's really something beyond craft or something you can quantify. It's about spending the time. It's about rehearsing and yeah. spending the time and sharing a soul connection, right? And a vibration. Yeah, it's the trust. And it's something you do see, I think, more in jazz than you see in rock music yeah. or, or in pop music. And that's why it's all the more special when just a nod can convey everything to the other people on stage. I think it's all the more moving because sadly, I think the Everly's over the years have become more famous for their battles than for 
their love for each other, the fights yeah. and, you know, I mean, the fighting on stage, you know, breaking yeah. up backstage. Those things are great rock and roll lore and trivia for, for the junkies. But it gets me sad sometimes that in many circles, they're more renowned for the disagreements and, and the bitterness. I mean, people, I think more people know about that than know that they reunited to open for Simon and Garfunkel in 2004. I mean, these I guys really, it's, they really loved each other. It's really difficult. You know, I think that music people, for the most part, you know, especially from that era and from my dad's era, they really wanted to be known for their music for the most part. And their personal lives or their disagreements or what goes on behind the scenes would be really hard to quantify or explain to anybody. Right. Yeah. As I've been doing this project, I can say that, you know, there are certain fans that are diehard and love the boys and I call them boys. They're like men that have now been, you know, deceased, <laughs> but you know, I'm still in love with, you know, the young pictures of the Everly brothers. But I mean, look, there are people that get into the drama and the like low hanging fruit of that. And then there are people who just love them and obsess over every little detail. And I know for a fact from my vantage point that everyone loves each other and loved each other very, very much. And that Don, in fact, had Phil's ashes in his house when he passed away. So I don't think that there was ever any loss of love between the two of them. But what I will say, which is, you know, why, you know, sometimes with the Internet, the way people talk and even some reporters, it's such a bummer that they focus on things like this. But as I've gone through my research, you know, you find these guys asleep on chairs a lot backstage and they did a lot of the early package tours and they were exploited. I mean, God bless the industry for what it does for all of us. But music industry was just kind of being created and it was very predatory and very new and those guys were on a tv show probably every week for yeah. years and hosting their own shows and on radio shows they had punishing schedules and i think that when you're thrust into a situation where every moment of your life is worth money to someone people start to commandeer the relationships in your life so that they don't prevent you from making money you know yeah. and i've seen that with big stars of today you know where it's like that human being really needs a rest or they really need to see a good friend um, yep. and have a decent intimate talk with someone and not be working, but every hour of their day is booked. And I do think the Everly suffered from that from the fifties and, and into the sixties and really, you know, got burnt out. And I think it hurt yeah. their relationship. I always wondered how much of that was record label guys talking up drama to help with sales. You know, how much of it was just a form of hype and, and blowing it out of proportion just to, you know, I, don't think it, I hope so. I, I don't I don't think that they were using it to hype them. I mean, I'm sure they would have loved to exploit them more and get them to do more stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just yeah. I, I just think that, you know, when you start as a child actor or a child performer and you get yeah. to a certain point in your life where you have children and, you know, you, you want to take take a deep breath and sort of figure out what it's like to be a human being again when you've been on the road forever. And I, I think that they suffered from that, honestly, my personal yeah. perspective. Yeah, I do believe they loved each other. And if you watch any footage of them in 04 playing together around the world, you can yeah. tell it. I mean, I want to ask you about some of the specific tracks because I love sure. the track listing. And I, I want to ask what inspired you on certain cuts. Um, when will I be loved? I never knew that Phil wrote that for 
for Elvis. I think most people remember Linda Ronstadt's version. It, I really feel like by kicking off the album with it, you're recovering this as an Everly Brothers song. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. When Will I Be Loved is amazing. Yeah. No, no, you first. You first. Oh, no, I just, I'm curious, like, what inspired you? Because honestly, there's not a lot of us who've named our children Everly. So, I mean, as the super fan who was so inside, I'm wondering how much of you is in this album? Because the fact that these are songs that I know all meant a lot to you for very different creative and artistic reasons. But I'm wondering which of these songs really called to you in a special way? I mean, all of the songs on this album are super extraordinary, but I mean, a song like When Will I Be Loved and Kathy's Clown are obviously hits that people hold really dear and represent each brother, like with a singular perspective as a songwriter. And I think the weird kind of outlier that is really kind of a big deal to me is baby what you want me to do the jimmy reed song because my dad he taught me how to play that on the guitar right when he started playing buddy holly and the everly brothers for me and i was so kind of it was a lot of reminiscing of the first time you hear this harmony right and how it makes you feel and how it gives you this little buzz and seeing that they they covered these songs was like super exciting because you get to get introduced to the Everly Brothers and you get to hear something that you don't really feel is played out and you've heard a million times before. And it's important music. It's important songwriting. So, you know, I wasn't so strict about like being an Everly super fan and being like, here's everything I know about the Everly's and why. It was more about (laughs) like, if you have some friends over and you're into vinyl or you've got a playlist going, and you want to just submerge yourself into this much more beautiful, idyllic world of like heartbreak and harmonies and falling in love and just being a character in the case of like Muskrat or Hey Doll Baby, just being this Southern kind of character. It just was a great way to sort of fall in love with them all over again, you know? And yeah. I wanted it to be a good listening experience, like a really good sequence. And I know Adele has been bringing that up, like people sequence records the way they do for a reason. My dad was huge on that. It's very and important. I wanted it to be just a badass way to just sink into this music. And we met, you know, John with Ravi Shankar. Yeah. And Ravi's music is the kind of thing where you'd be like, I don't want to listen to sitar music. Why would I want to listen to that? And then you turn it on and all of a sudden your body feels good. Your heart feels light. You feel moved inside. And I realized doing this project that this music makes me feel a lot like Ravi's music does because of the harmonies, that it gives you this tingle that just lifts you up and helps kind of reaffirm your soul. And that was really, for me, that was a litmus test. It was like, is that making me feel tingly and happy and you know like i could have a cocktail and and a cute little poofy dress on and be talking to my neighbors over the fence or something i don't know just feels good no i i I got to see your dad on stage with robbie in london uh that certain tribute show to a certain somebody and uh i know exactly what you mean and i love that you included a jimmy reed cover as opposed to say bye bye love yet again nothing against that song but it's why it's such a rich collection and what also struck me was how many of the songs have taken on the new life by other artists or inspired other new artists robert plant and alison krauss covered gone 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 but listening to walk right back i'm like 
oh my god did neil young lift the entire opening for harvest moon from the opening to walk right back i kept hearing so many echoes i noticed of their that music. too did you you know I what i'm talking about right yes yes i, I did i couldn't believe it i kept playing it back and i love I that song yeah but i hear I, that that's this the thing like the everly's influence is like the big bang it's still expanding and i couldn't believe how much of other people's stuff i kept hearing in this compilation it's a true Rosetta Stone, and it, it is something that young people who are digging being musicians should check out. And it's something that people who remember going like, yeah, I like them. That makes me feel good when I hear Kathy's Clown or Wake Up Little Susie to your point or Bye Bye Love. It's like, well, you can be in that world for an hour or so. Exactly. And at this time in the world that we're living in, it's a really nice place to be. And that's, you know, from for me doing the work with my dad's estate and with the family and the band, you know, sometimes we're like, God, you know, why are we doing this? Like, he's already had his career. He's, you know, solidified this thing. And for me, it's about making sure that many generations can enjoy the uplift of the music and of something truly positive, something created from a truly positive place. And I think these guys do that too. Well, I'd like to ask you about that if I could, because since we lost your dad, there's been the release of the American Treasure Box set, which is probably the best compilation of music in one place I've heard in many years. Um, the release of Wildflowers and all the rest, which uh, is so moving. And, and of course, something I never expected, Angel Dream, a song that was on my wedding CD I gave to people, uh, Songs from Cheese the One. You have done such a beautiful and soulful job of being a steward of your dad's legacy. And it, it falls to a lot of family members to have to do this sometimes. And I love that these albums are still coming out. I think if they discovered a Shakespeare manuscript, if they discovered a Picasso no one had seen, in a way it allows the artist to continue to give us new gifts after their passing, which is on a level of spirituality I can't even explain. I know it's not just you, Adria, but who are the team that make these decisions regarding your dad's art and music? I mean, we do it sort of in a really collaborative way. I, I think a lot of it starts from the music. We always start with high quality music storytelling, right? Like, what do people really want to hear? We have a huge unreleased archive that's nutty. I don't even know how I'll get through that in my lifetime. We have a live archive that's nutty as well. But I mean, original music too. But in this case, you know, it's always it's always going to start with the music. It's always going to start with the living members of the band. And, you know, people like Bugs, my dad's um, guitar tech and best friend and confidant. You know, my dad was very close with Bugs. Bugs is a very intelligent and soulful and, you know, complete musicologist human being. I don't know if that's a sentence, but it is. he <laughs> is someone I rely on very strongly to give us context and, you know, help us find archival pieces that go with the music. And my family, my sister and my stepmother, and even my mother at times chime in and they definitely work with us to make sure that the general stuff is approved like what the okay we're putting out wildflowers and all the rest or okay we're gonna remaster angel dream and like depending on their level of interest in it people are more involved depending on the project so like with mm. angel dream dana was like i really want a collage album cover so anna kim actually got her friend to do it 
And it turned out really cool and provocative and interesting, totally unexpected to me. And, you know, then we work with where the music and that imagery intersects and build a world around it, you know, but a collection like that, you know, where my dad always hated the, the mixes and mastering on that. It's really nice to be able to process that right on the back end of wildflowers and have it just done. Do you know what I mean? Not sitting on a shelf because it made sense that they were sort of interconnected and overlapping to, to handle that. I mean, wildflowers is such a special record. And I've, I've always said that the three solo albums your dad made two with Jeff Lynn, I think are a whole distinct genre, all their own. Um, Those three records are very special, but wildflowers, you know, so many of us that impacted our lives. I'll never forget when I lived in Hollywood and I came home and found my wife playing it on her own. And I counted it as a personal victory that I had converted her. We did a TV special with your dad for VH1 at the time when that tour began. And the legend always was that he and Rick Rubin wanted to put out this massive two album set. They weren't able to do it. And then I know he was planning on releasing, you know, and all the rest as a separate song sequence in the mid 2000s. Was it always important to you that eventually it all come out as a multiple disc box set and not just the all the rest on its own? I think what was important to me is that he sat me in the office and played me the double album. And before he played it for the label or anybody. And I was back from college and I just sat on the floor and listened for hours, you know, and he left me with a CD of it and I went to college with it and had it in my car and lived with it and thought, this is just the most fucking incredible thing ever, you know? And then when we were confronted with, Hey, he's finished this record, all the rest. And he wanted to do something on the road very special, right? Like the, the, his plan was that the anniversary tour would be, you know, the last word playing the hits tour, which could have, should have happened, frankly, 10 years before that. He should have allowed himself to play whatever he wanted, right? Yes. But it's like, you know, he was just, he loved entertaining people and he did love the stagecraft of like pulling off that amazing, super high voltage show. But he had this very big idea about doing a live series at the Hollywood Bowl with a lot of guest singers and really sort of telling the story live. But the record that he left behind was very short and it didn't have a lot in it, like demos and, and stuff like that. And my challenge with that project was like, okay, this is great. And this is before we even knew we we're going to have to put it out during a pandemic. Right? So it was like, you know, how do we make these songs feel as important as songs people have been listening to for 20 odd years and are in love with, yeah. right? How do we elevate this other body of music, which truly was just as good and recorded at the same time. And just as important to him as the storytelling of the first half of that arc, right? So we didn't change his sequence because he had he's a sequencing master, right? I mean, we might have made like one adjustment that the band wanted to make with us, but we we really spent a lot of time just trying to give context to the whole idea of people working at the top of their game with the best group of people in the room, masters of their craft, and how do we do that? And I got a lot of help from Warner Brothers, from Robin Hurley, our A&R person from the band. It was like a, definitely a roundtable discussion and a lot of help from Rick Rubin, 
personally yeah. that he gave me a great deal of time and love and um, support in how to do this. And then Bugs Wydell again, you know, was in there pulling out things where Tom had changed a line at the last minute, like in Leave Virginia Alone. She still, finds, she still finds good where no one could. Like my favorite line in Leave Virginia Alone, Dad like wrote on the floor. Yeah, he didn't write yeah. it in his notebook. He wrote it on the printout that they handed to the band and like scratched it out and wrote it in. You know, like just cool things that could help us understand more what he was thinking. And I just felt like, you know, that that masterpiece of his was worthy of really showing people the process. And I think the demos disc is probably my favorite thing that we've ever put out, like such a revealing and like beautifully revealing and exciting process story and also just cool music and like yeah. less more undone music. But I wanted to correct one thing. He had four Please. solo albums. Oh. Because he had Highway Companion with That's Jeff Lynne as well. So there's companion, Full, Fever, Full Moon Fever, Into the Great White Open, Highway, Highway Companion, and Wildflowers. I'm sorry. I always thought Into the Great White Open was a Heartbreakers album. Oh, no, you're right. I'm wrong. You're better than me. John, <laughs> damn. I'm so sorry. You're right. You're right. No it's worries. just Jeff Lynne wow. albums. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Right on. Well, listen, I mean, I could do this all day. I, I could praise you for putting out the live cut the live disc of wildflowers live having seen that tour and the fact that you picked the best versions from the years uh, you know that final tour from having the web sisters be the backup singers which was just uh such a brilliant move to i will never forget the same summer donald trump banned transgender americans from serving in the military your dad projected a photo of alexis arquette live during american girl yeah the way he did. that he the, the politics and the morality were one in hand with the art all the time. I can only imagine how many times a year cretinous politicians want you to give them the right so I won't back down. Um, before, before I let you go, I could ask you about this for days and praise this new Everly's collection. But do you have any thoughts about future projects and where you go from here with the archives? Because I'll tell you, finally being able to hear your dad's version of Lee Virginia alone after all those years of Rod Stewart was personally healing for me. So... Any idea what might be next? I mean, we have a big project coming out at the end of the summer, but I don't want to say anything about it yet because it's not um, like publicly revealed, but it's a very cool, very special project um, that I think the fans will really dig. Um, It's a live project. And, you know, for me, you know, what's next in the next week is just getting um, Hey Doll Baby launched. We got a really beautiful live stream that we put together with like Graham Nash and Carly Simon and all these like incredible. I, I got some of my buddies like Lucas Nelson and Jacob Dylan to play on it. And it's it's just going to be so beautiful and such a moment in the music community. And um, I've gotten Gibson to reissue also a, a guitar, which is going to be staggering um one of their groovy guitars so nice i'm basically just gonna be trying to support the families of the everly brothers to get this project up and running and hopefully delve into deeper preservation of their archives which i'm just doing out of the love of my heart and the music and and knowing how important their music is to people like my dad having a career and petty will continue to grow and tell stories and the archives will continue to be lovingly uh, taken in hand. And, and I think 
you're going to dig the project we have coming. I can't up. wait to see it. And I got to say, those artists you just mentioned, Graham and Carly Simon and Jacob Dylan and Lucas, are all friends of this show. And it is so great, Adria, to finally, finally suck you into our evil army of the night. Thank you so much for joining Anytime. us. Please Anytime. come back again and let's promote the new album, uh, the new collection when it comes out later this year. In the meantime, Absolutely. everybody, the best thing you're going to hear all summer is Hey Doll Baby. It was first released for Record Store Day 2022. It is available now for purchase or for streaming. Seriously, it makes a great gift and it'll brighten whatever mood you're in. Adria, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for curating this beautiful collection that really feels like you're experiencing the Everlease for the first time. I mean it. It's really a blessing and thank you for all you do. Oh, thanks for everything you do, John. Thank Thank you. you. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Andrea in Colorado. Hello. Hello. Thank you for taking my call and thank you again for so much for what you do and thank you to oh, all your so. callers, even the ones that I don't agree with and you go on crazy rants after the hang up. It's it's all good. <laughs> but I just Yeah, we had the Florida racist about- call again last night. Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, I heard that. And uh, yeah. and you've really gotten me through the last couple of weeks again. Thank so you. I really appreciate it. The abortion issue and is is just emotional. And, and so I'm not going to be as articulate as I'd like, but I'm going to try. Um, I just w- was reading an article from 2013 where Planned Parenthood had wanted to stop using even the terminology pro-choice because they felt like it was just simply a counter- punch to yeah. Yeah. Um, the pro-lifers and it made it very black and white and it, so that it became about real life and your death and you know that's what they could simplify it to and they didn't want yeah. that you're right and and yet here we are all these years later 
oh, with this giant, horrible situation. And one of your previous callers tonight said something about, you know, what are we going to do? Well, we have to figure out how to mitigate the damage. And other than packing the court, I don't know what we can do. And I hope, you know, your callers and, and all the conversation that you generate will help us come up with solutions. But one thought that I've had repeatedly is women have, you know, there is a move to control women and, and yes, keep women is. down and put women back 50 years. And that's been ongoing. And I, I'm, I'm 58 years old and I started working uh, right out of college and I thought I had it made like, Oh, the, the workplace is open to me because my previous generation did all this work and things just caught me off guard left and right how misogynistic the world yeah. was and the work environment was. And, um, you know, I just never thought it would be that way. And, you know, I left um, my job on, in Washington, D.C. about uh, nine years ago now, and I felt like it was worse when I left the climate Why? towards women Why? than it was when I started in 1987. Why that? Why, uh, but why do you feel that? I, the misogyny was... And it, it just felt like it was it was thick, <laughs> just, you know, like it, especially as I became, you know, approaching 50, I was an old woman and nobody even wanted you in the room anymore. Right. Um, right. Uh, they want young women's opinions because they might be attractive and, you know, whatever. And, you know, it was a big problem. I, I was in the military, so there was some of that. Um, yeah. But anyway the part of the power over women is again, just denying any even conversation about their health and what reality is. We don't talk about menstruation. We don't talk about periods. Nope. We don't talk about nope. the need for tampons and maxi pads in every bathroom in the world. You know, we don't yep. talk about that. I had a, I live in Colorado now and I had a chance to go to a rural college uh, to do some teaching uh, this past spring and I was stunned to see this dispensary that was full of uh, tampons and pads. It's the first one I've seen anywhere <laughs> and they were free. You know, it was like that should be everywhere and we should be talking about it all the time. I'm sick of it being such an uncomfortable subject for people and things like ectopic pregnancy and endometriosis, which is, I, I, got into it with someone in a horrible way on Facebook at one of the last years that I was in the military yeah. over, um, I think her name was Sandra Bland. She was testifying of before course. Congress about her need for um, birth control. She went to Georgetown University. She that was under their Sandra Bland, but yeah. System. Yeah, that, oh, that okay. was, uh, Sa Sa Sandra, Sandra Bland was the woman who was tragically killed by, by, uh, by police. Oh, that I'm was sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. it was the woman that, that Rush Limbaugh called her a slut. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But she had endometriosis, and she was testifying about why she needed, and, and everyone called her a slut. And um, Yes. Sandra yeah. Fluke. One of my colleagues. Sandra Fluke. Yeah. Sandra Fluke. Okay, sorry, I got the name wrong. No, yeah, my fault, um, too. A one-syllable name. <laughs> um, no worries. Anyway, you know, nobody knows about endometriosis. And, um, That's true. I you know, it's and, and infertility and, and endometriosis causes infertility. And, and I had that experience and tried to adopt a baby and was ready to lay out the 
then when I was trying to do it with, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Now it's hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars to adopt a baby. Yep. And that information needs to be out there every day. Andrea, you're awesome. We have to, we got to hit a hard break, but I would rather have people discuss these health issues that have tasteful colored ribbons to signify these healthcare issues. Thank you so much for your call. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's go to Eileen in Georgia. Thank you for your patience on hold, Eileen. No problem. I was thrilled to know that there's an Orthodox Jewish comedian, but I did agree with her friend that you can't be Jewish and like Trump. <laughs> I did too. The reason I called was, did you see the headline? It, it was even broadcast on PBS. More than one million voters switched to GOP, raising alarm for Democrats. Hidden in there is that Democrats also picked up 638. Exactly. It was a lot. Yeah, it was 1.3 million, but almost 700,000 Republicans became Democrats. So it really was a lot less than what they're saying. It's just the media has got it in for this president in this White House. The media is just, they don't want, the guys who own the media, I should say, do not want to see their taxes go up three percentage points. And that's what it's all about. It's scary as heck. But anyway, so thank you for your words. Thank By you. By the way, your screener was awesome. What's that? Your screener was great. That's my producer. Thank you. We're very proud she still talks to us. Appreciate it. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Her. 